Here I was at a very good hospital in town in the cardiac unit, and my first meal was roast beef. My wife took one look at the tray. She grabbed it, ran it out to the nurse's station. I heard a bunch of commotion. And about 10 minutes later, I had a wholly different plate with, uh, I think, some rice and vegetables on it. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And this, my friend, is the most nutrient-dense podcast anywhere to be found on the web today. And with that in mind, we have a huge show coming your way. What a story it is that you are about to hear. Dr. Neil Cooper, his is a story of survival. It's about not giving in to fate. It's about realizing that it is possible to change and then changing and paying it forward. You see, Dr. Cooper suffered a heart attack. He actually collapsed at his office, was rushed to the hospital, had emergency surgery. He lived to tell the tale and then radically changed his life with the encouragement and in all honesty, the insistence of his wife. And then you're going to hear how everything he thought he knew about nutrition was erased over the course of just three days at one single event. Like so many of us, Dr. Cooper thought that he had been eating healthy. And then over these three days, his mind was just blown. And suddenly he's looking at medicine and the food on his plate in a whole new light. Such an amazing story coming your way in just a little bit. And then today, we're also going to hear from Dr. Vanita Raman. She's going to be back on the show, joining us to talk about salt and potassium in your diet, what you need to know about sodium and heart health. And she's also going to be sticking around to answer your questions as for the very first time, we open up the mailbag on the exam room. But before we go any further... I have a very special announcement. Super excited to announce that we have a very special live exam room broadcast coming your way at the Fruitive here in Washington, D.C. on December 18th. Lee Crosby, you know her, exceptional dietitian extraordinaire on the show all the time, a.k.a. the Fiber Queen. She and I will be doing a live recording of the Exam Room podcast December 18th at the Fruitive Restaurant in DuPont Circle right here in Washington, D.C. So mark your calendars and we will be doing a show teaching you how to eat healthier for the holidays. And we're going to be including some treats too. So don't worry about that. So how to eat healthier for the holidays not feel like you're missing out on anything, and then also not packing on the pounds. We're going to teach you how to get a jump start on those New Year's resolutions and guaranteed to be lots of fun. But here's the thing, right? So what's a show without dinner? It isn't a restaurant after all. So we are going to feed you a delicious plant-based feast where you can sample Fruitive's amazing new winter menu, dinner and a show, plus Q&A 
for just $30. It's a bargain at twice the price. Now, here's the real question. So you're going to learn about healthy eating and some tips about surviving the holidays when you're vegan, right? All important stuff, but you may be wondering, what's on the menu? That's really what this boils down to, right? What are you going to be serving that night? Well, my friend, you are going to be getting down. You will not go without. Check this out. On the menu that night is the immunity elixir. You're feeling run down. You're feeling like you might be getting sick. Boom, the immunity elixir has what you need. And then we've also got the empowered plant cakes, the solstice panini, and the pumpkin harvest chili. Now, let me tell you about this chili. I've had this chili. And as soon as that spoon hits your mouth, your life is never the same. Your life will never be the same after you taste this chili. It is that good. It is world-class and it is packed with nutrients, full of flavor. And here's a pro tip. Make sure that when you try this, you're sitting down. You need to be sitting down. It is that good that you will go weak in the knees. The pumpkin harvest chili. So come on out to the Fruitive on December 18th. Try it. Put a smile on your face and enjoy the show with us. December 18th, showtime at 7 p.m. That is at the Fruitive at 1330 Connecticut Avenue, right here in Washington, D.C., in DuPont Circle. And we would just love to meet you. Come on out, enjoy the meal, enjoy the chili and the elixir and the cakes and the solstice panini. It's all going to be extraordinary. And you can get tickets right now, facebook.com slash weight loss champion. And I have also included a link to purchase tickets in the show notes for this episode. Lee and I and the gang at Fruitive, we hope to see you there. And now on with this show. And we're kicking things off with Neil Cooper, the doctor a survivor, and an inspirer. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. I promised you at the top of the show that we were going to hear one of the most inspirational stories ever told on the exam room, and right here... I am a man of my word because joining me on the line is the attending radiologist at Kaiser Permanente of Georgia. He is certified by the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine, and he's the former chief of diagnostic imaging at Kaiser Permanente and a heart attack survivor, most importantly. With that, we welcome Dr. Neil Cooper to the exam room. Thank you so much for joining us, Doc. Chuck, thank you so much for having me today. This is a real honor and a pleasure to be here with you. The honor is truly all mine, and our listeners, I'm so looking forward to having you share your story with them because a lot of people think that once you have a heart attack, I mean, that's it. You know, you think that your cards have been dealt, and that's that's it. I mean, you got to play the hand that was dealt, and there's not a whole heck of a lot that you can do about it, but you are living, breathing proof that nothing could be further from the truth, and so I, I want to start with this. Before we get to the day of the actual heart attack, I think that we should start all the way back at the beginning, where I think a lot of these problems start, is at childhood. Talk to me about your, your diet growing up. What were the kind of meals that you were eating around the table with your family? I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and all of us have our, our stories about different regions of the country, but certainly we were in the heart of, of meat country and, and uh, uh, beef, and that was a staple at our house. Uh, you know, growing up in the, 
late 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, in our house, uh, a green vegetable really was green jello. That, that would be like uh, <laughs> our, our best, our, our best, uh, you know, attempt to get something green into us. But it was it was white bread and mashed potatoes and uh, roast beef, uh, very typically. And of course, at the time, uh, my mother, my family thought that they were feeding us the most healthy diet. Uh, that was advised uh, that they saw in the news media and uh, and uh, and through marketing. And that's really all that they knew. You know, it's it's whether it's in Omaha or or that area of the world, or it's it's from the South, where a lot of our listeners and and where I'm from. It's you know, for me, it was hot dogs, macaroni and cheese, and baked beans and things like that. But you know, I remember specifically being told that just like you this was a healthy diet this is what you're supposed to eat but the vegetables were in fact few and far between um i'm curious though with that diet as we know now that can lead to trouble long term did your family have any history of heart issues or diabetes well absolutely um you know chronic disease is rampant and my paternal grandfather had died at age 51 from his heart attack. My father started having heart attacks in his 40s, and he died at age 61 from his heart attack. And so, I, you know, before 2012, I figured if, if I calculate this right, I had till age 71 till I died from my heart attack. It was just, it was just part of my genes, and, and that's what happened in my family. It's kind of a morbid thought because you think about it, 71 in today's terms is still awfully young. Uh, you just you say that that's just kind of what you would accept it, but that's not exactly the easiest pill in the world to swallow, though, right? It's not, but, um, you know, I thought that I was doing everything that I could to, to be a good, healthy uh, person. So uh, I would eat uh, a turkey burger rather than a beef burger because that was healthy. It's not, but that's what I thought. And uh, I'd have the baked chicken instead of the fried chicken, and I stay away from uh, fried food. So I thought I was doing, you know, everything that I could possibly do to prevent uh, my heart attack from coming. But uh, I really didn't expect it when I was at age 55 and had my and had my heart attack. Were you staying active as well? Were you jogging or out Absolutely. walking? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Stayed very active. Uh, uh, my wife and I went to the gym all the time. We had personal trainers. So that's why... I really thought that through, you know, through my uh, good nutrition uh, and my exercise that I was going to to maybe stay away from the heart attack. Now, I'm curious, was your family history, the fact that your grandfather had had so many and that your father ultimately died from a heart attack and you just assumed that you were going to die from one as well, is that what drove you into medicine in the first place? What was your inspiration for becoming a doctor? Well, certainly, uh, seeing seeing uh, the the family members that were sick and a lot of family members that I never got to meet because they had already passed, uh, absolutely was a driver for wanting to go in and to to maybe help uh, help others avoid those same consequences, or if not avoid, then at least when they had those those terrible diseases, then at least I could help them uh, survive it, and that that was yeah very much an important part of wanting to become a physician and go into healthcare. Let's talk about the day of the heart attack. This was 2012. Do you remember the exact day? Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, it was in May of 2012. And uh, like like every other morning, I went to the gym that morning before work to, to get a good workout in with my trainer. And, uh, and 
it was right after my workout that all of a sudden I started having probably the worst indigestion that I'd ever had before. I thought I was having horrible reflux or or this chest pain was due to some musculoskeletal problem that I induced during during the workout, but it was so it was so painful that I had to sit down every time this wave of pain would would come and uh, had to kind of catch my breath. Mm. Uh, so I was able, you know, to, to, to go to the locker room and get dressed. I put my scrubs on, and I was headed to my office that morning. Um, I was scheduled for a full day of performing procedures on patients, and I was in the pre-op area talking to the head nurse when the, the pain just all of a sudden became unrelenting, and basically I went to the floor with a full-blown ST elevation MI at that point. Wow. Um, what was the reaction among your colleagues? You see this among patients, obviously, who come in with heart conditions, but to see one of their own hit the floor like that, that must have been pretty jarring. That's an interesting question because it really was. I, I, I was in a fog at that point, and it's, it's kind of foggy now, but I remember seeing the faces of my friends, my uh, colleagues uh, coming down, and their faces were horrified, you know. And fortunately, though, I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, EMS uh, took me over to the to the uh, closest hospital at that point. Uh, it was uh, I was fortunate that that hospital had a uh, STEMI protocol, and it was under 90 minutes from the time I hit the door to the time the stent was placed. And after the stent was placed, that was the first time that morning that I, I realized I was going to live. I mean, when you hit that floor and you were looking up at the faces of your colleagues, did you think back to your father and your grandfather, and did you just think that this was it? Well, oh, absolutely. Because, you know, when we're trained in BLS and ACLS, we know exactly what's happening to the heart, and sometimes we know a little bit too much. So I'm not being facetious, but I honestly thought that there was only two outcomes that were going to happen. Uh, because when the heart is starved of its oxygen, uh, it's going to begin fibrillating and then it's going to stop beating. So I was either going to open my eyes, uh, having had electrical shock to my chest, or I was going to open my eyes and see a bunch of relatives I hadn't seen for a long time up uh, up in a different place. So mm. uh, I honestly, I honestly thought that you know that this, this is it. Uh, and every minute, every minute that goes by seems like uh, an eternity. And I just wanted to get to the ambulance. I wanted to get to the hospital. I wanted to get out of the ER. I wanted to get this tent going. And um, it was, you know, I just, you, you don't, you think, you think too much about what's, what's going to happen. But I was very, very fortunate had a very good uh, team that day. And I was in the right place at the right time. It sounds to me like you were very much caught off guard by this. You, you went that morning for your workout. It, you didn't mention having any symptoms when you woke up, so this really must have struck at the gym, right, when you started to feel ill? It's interesting. You're absolutely right. I felt just fine that morning and got through the entire workout, and it was after the workout that uh, I sat down and started having the, these uh, intermittent chest symptoms. So, yeah, it was, it was right after the workout. And how, how was your family with this? Uh, I mean, if it was jarring for your colleagues, I can't imagine how it must have been for your your wife and children. Oh, well, they, I mean, they were they were totally in shock. Uh, at work, when I got transferred to the hospital, uh, one of the nurses called my wife, and 
honestly, she thought that maybe I'd gotten a little sick or, or you know, she, she really did not comprehend what was going on. Even when she got to the hospital and I was on my way to the cardiac cath lab, even at that point, it was still not really registering what was going on and what was happening, uh, uh, despite being told that he was, he was having a heart attack and needed to have a stent. It just mm. it still didn't really register. Did they give you a like a percentage of how clogged your arteries were? I remember my grandfather telling me well, my arteries were 95% clogged or something like that. Were they able to give you an estimate as to just how much plaque had built up in there? Well, yeah, they did say that uh, it was about an 80 to 90% stenosis in the LAD, uh, left anterior descending uh, coronary artery, and some other branches uh, with, with lesser uh, uh, type, lesser degrees of stenosis. And at this point, as you're waking up from the surgery, you have the stent placed in there. Were you still thinking 100% that this was just genetics and it was out of your control? Oh my gosh! Yes. Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, when when once once the stent was opened up, I, I felt like uh, it was like a miracle. It went went from ten plus crushing chest pain to absolutely zero pain, and I thought, oh my gosh, thank goodness! First time uh, all morning, I thought I was going to live, and I felt fantastic. Uh, so I went to went to uh, the recovery room, uh, went up to the cardiac uh, unit, and. Um, uh, although I was still a little bit in shock what had happened, uh, I just assumed that uh, I would continue with the same exercise program. Once I got out, I'd do my cardiac rehab, and I would try to eat a little more fish, and I would, uh, uh, you know, uh, try to cut down on the few French fries that I was having. And but that's that's about all I could do. And then I was going to maximize my medical therapy, obviously with the beta blockers and the statins and the uh, antiplatelet drugs. And that's that's all. That at that point, that's all I thought I could do. And at what point did it dawn on you that, hey, you know, maybe it is that little bit of French fries or maybe it's even the turkey burgers and things that are contributing to what's happening here. When did nutrition really start to creep into the picture for you? Well, that's 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 the interesting part of the story to me is that um, on the day of discharge, first of all, first of all, just to tell you what the disconnect is, um, the first day. Uh, of, of having the stent placed, and I was in the uh, intensive care unit. Uh, I was allowed to have solid food and have dinner that night. So a tray came to my to my room, and my wife was there. I took the top off the plate, and there was some, uh, I think, a little pile of green beans. There was a nice big pile of mashed potatoes with butter on it, mm. and then some really nice slices of roast beef on my plate. Really? And here I was... Here I was at a very good hospital in town and in the cardiac unit, and my first meal was roast beef. My wife uh, took one look at the tray. She grabbed it off off my bed, ran it out to the nurse's station. I heard a bunch of commotion, and about 10 minutes later, I had a wholly different plate with, uh, I think, some rice and vegetables on it. So uh, what a disconnect there is between, you know, the mission of a hospital for wellness and the day-to-day operations right there in the ICU. But in, in terms of my understanding about nutrition, when I was, the day I was discharged from the hospital, my wife, who had a real interest in my tertiary prevention, asked the discharging cardiologist and said, what can we do to prevent this happening in the future? And 
I was once again extremely lucky from my medical group. This particular cardiologist was also boarded in integrative medicine. And he, without blinking, said, you need to read this book by Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. It's called Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. So we went home. Uh, I was recovering at home, and my wife devoured the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, "She said uh, we're going to become plant-based. And to be honest with you, I was resistant. I'm not proud of that fact, but I was resistant because nobody in my on my medical team recommended that and nowhere in my continuing medical education, despite treating atherosclerosis with balloons and stents in people's leg arteries and in their renal arteries, never had I been told that we should uh, eat plants, more plants and less animals to help prevent this. So I I was still a little bit skeptical. Um, And my wife continued reading the, the, the books, the literature. She found books by Neil Barnard, and uh, she was convinced that we had to become uh, whole food plant-based. Well, you may not be proud of the fact that you were a little bit skeptical, a little bit resistant, as you put it initially, but you shouldn't be ashamed of it either because one of the things that we've come to realize, and if anybody's been listening to the show for any length of time, is that in medical school, future doctors get little to no education on nutrition. And, you know, you did not graduate to become a doctor of nutrition. You were working in radiology. So how in the world would you really have come to, you know, acquire this information until it was absolutely necessary? And at this point, it absolutely was critical that you know this stuff. So don't don't be disappointed or ashamed or anything like that. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, that does make me feel a little bit better. But, uh, you know, I honestly feel at this point that, the healthcare institutions and doctors honestly might be the last to understand this. I mean, we, we, we are resistant to it because we don't see the randomized controlled trials. Uh, we don't see the sexy drugs, the, the sexy procedures that were taught, and, and we spend so much time learning about and trying to, to help our patients, uh, but we don't realize that we're not really getting to the root cause of it. So it's not taught, although it, that is changing, and Thank you very much to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and helping to to bring this to the attention of uh, medical schools. And there's a lot of other organizations that are now beginning to make changes so that doctors of all people and other healthcare professionals need to learn about this. Was your wife interested in nutrition before your heart attack? Because it seemed to me like she kind of had that moment where she was like, well, he can't be eating mashed potatoes with butter and roast beef after having a heart attack. She knew right away to kind of get that off of your plate and get in those rice and vegetables like you were talking about. Did she always have a keen interest in this? Again, I feel very fortunate. Uh, My wife has been uh, very strong in promoting fitness and wellness, and she's always, always had a interest in good nutrition. But I I look back and I, I ask her, how did you know back then? We were not vegan. We were not plant-based at that point. How did you understand to get that plate off of my off of my bed at that point? But, yes, she's always been very interested in, in health and, and better nutrition, although I have to say it was after my heart attack that uh, both of us really began to learn much more uh, about that. So you go into the plant-based diet with a little bit of skepticism, but how was that transition for you as you began to eat more fruits, eat more vegetables? Was that a difficult corner for you to turn or did it kind of come naturally at this point? No, let me let me let me just clarify that 
from May, June, July, August, there was a little bit of headbutting at home, and I was still a little bit resistant. I understood I needed to have a little more fruits and vegetables, but I still was not ready to give up the fish and and the chicken uh, on all those things that I still perceived to be healthy. I didn't see any society recommendations uh, from the cardiology groups, the Heart Association, about uh, about becoming completely plant-based. So uh, for several months at home, we still we still uh, kind of disagreed with each other. And mm. I'm going to just tell you that it was it was in September, many months after my heart attack, that I remember clearly the day. I came home from work, and my wife was in her office, and she yelled out to me. I was in the kitchen, and she said, Neil, there is a meeting up in Washington, D.C. It's put on by physicians. Would you at least go to that and listen to physicians? Maybe you would uh, understand this better from them. And I said, yes, because that's what I'm used to doing. I'm used to going to continuing medical education meetings and hearing from other physicians uh, so I said, yes, let's go. And she said, it's some organization we'd never heard about. Uh, there was a doctor, Neil Barnard. We don't know who that is exactly, although she had read one of his books. She said, let's go. And I said, yes, let, let's go. And it was a weekend, kickstart intensive. Uh, and it was in Washington, D.C. in October. And I remember that meeting uh, like it was yesterday. I mean, I, I've been to those intensives, and I'm speaking at the one coming up next month here in, in January. I'm curious, how much did you know about nutrition going in versus how much do you feel like you learned coming out of that? Do you feel like you doubled your nutrition knowledge, tripled it, quadrupled it? Can you can you even quantify? This meeting was such a shock to me, and I knew nothing about nutrition going into it. And it was a three-day kickstart intensive at that time back in 2012. And I remember from the opening uh, by Dr. Neil Barnard uh, to Michael Grieger to all the other speakers being absolutely amazed and wondering, how did I not know this information? It was, it was life-changing. And on the marketing materials, it said that, that this weekend will change your life. And that's marketing, but that weekend changed my life. And at the end of the meeting, uh, I honestly raised my hand. I said, this is it, 100% whole food, plant-based, low-fat, never going, going back. And from that day on, that's the journey that we have been on. But I'm telling you, I had to hear it from other medical professionals. I had to hear it from Neil and others. Uh, and, and, you know, the meeting is designed for both lay people and medical professionals. So there's a really nice mix of uh, just good common sense information, but also the references, the science behind all this. And once I heard that from these from these experts, and I went up after every single talk and spoke to every single doctor there, and I was absolutely blown away. And it's it's been a, a fantastic journey from the end of that meeting. Yeah, I would ask you to rate the importance of the Kickstart Intensive for turning your health around, but it sounds like this was the key cog in that wheel. This was the key cog. I mean, I, it was my wife that got us there, and it was Neil that, that really kicked us uh, forward, and it's, I've never looked back, and it's been the best journey of my life because of that. And, you know, you talk about embarrassed. I remember walking up to Neil, not knowing who he was, after one of his talks, and I asked the most, you know, stupid question that all of us ask in the beginning, 
I actually asked Neil Barnard, what about the protein? Yeah, there it is. And, you know, that, <laughs> there it is. It had, to, it had to come out. I'm embarrassed that I had to ask Neil that question. It couldn't have been somebody else, but he, he was so kind, and he didn't roll his eyes, and uh, uh, he explained that, you know, there's more than enough uh, protein in a plant-based diet, and, uh, you know, that was just one of, one of the highlights of the meeting. I think that I want to go back to something that you said also is that it's designed not just for doctors, but it is designed for the layperson as well. And in these groups, there is such a mix of people in there. And you can see the light bulbs literally going off equally between the people who have been through medical school and are in practice versus people who are only in the doctor's office to get prescriptions for antibiotics and high blood pressure medication, cholesterol medication, whatever the case may be. Everybody seems to be able to grasp the information that's being distributed at the event and i think that that's kind of what makes this thing so unique and it sounds like it was just the right formula for what you needed at the time well that's that's a really key point is that this information is absolutely digestible if you will by everybody uh if you want to look at the science and the science of it fantastic uh, that's there for you to have but if you you know want to just sit back and listen and absorb the 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 practical information that's being told, then, then that's part of it as well. But I, I honestly think that lay people are not encumbered with this, this background of uh, resistance to, to nutrition. So they are much, much more open to this. Uh, but, but you're right. Once physicians start to hear it and see the science behind it, then the light bulb absolutely goes off. And uh, I, to me, it was absolutely 100% life-changing, and um, I'll always be extremely appreciative. So when you get home after those three days, was the first thing you did go and clean out the refrigerator, clean out the pantry? <laughs> what kind of changes did you make? <laughs> well, that's funny. Uh, of course, our pantry was, had already been cleaned out by my wife long before I decided <laughs> to do this. But what happened is that now when I went to lunch at work or I went to a meeting at work or after work, I no longer ordered any any animal-based products. And now... I was on this journey of trying to learn how to order and how to, to eat the right way. But, yeah, we, we the pantry was completely cleared out after that meeting. And, and I think that's a big challenge for a lot of people when they first try this is that a lot of people are open to the idea but just don't know how to do it. So there's a lot of practical information out there. A lot of it comes from uh, the website of uh, PCRM. And uh, I think once you start to get the hang of it and realize that, that it can be done both at home and out uh, in restaurants, then it just becomes self-sustaining. Yeah, I remember you said that you were a little bit skeptical of this up front. Were some of your colleagues also a little bit skeptical when you told them that you were adopting that plant-based diet as well? A absolutely. And my mission when I got back to work after that meeting was to learn more and to make certain that all the doctors in my medical group at least had the information. They may not adopt the diet. They may not, you know, uh, you know, pursue it themselves, but everyone needs to have that information. So very soon after I got back, we, we, we brought in Michael Grieger to talk to the medical group, and I got on the uh, internal wellness committee at Kaiser Permanente, and then we started doing a 21-day uh, vegan challenge, which we call the 21-day plant power challenge for our staff members with the nurses and the doctors, and uh, we got the idea from PCRM. Uh, we adopted that. In fact, Neil helped uh, send uh, books for us in the very beginning, 
And uh, and now that that 21 day plant power challenge that we have, it's it's demanded every year by the staff, by by everybody, because they people enjoy it so much and it helps reinvigorate them. And each time we do it, more and more people convert to, if not a complete whole food plant based diet, then at least an 80 or 90 percent. And what that's fantastic. And what about disseminating some of this information then onto the patients that you are working with and the doctors who go through this challenge are working with? How do you guys broach those conversations? So it's very interesting. At the at the very first 21-day challenge we had, we had a debriefing session, which is the most powerful tool to let everybody stand up and tell their stories. And I remember distinctly one of the physicians, a primary care physician, standing up and saying, saying that uh, after I did this, the first you know week or two uh, was fantastic, but then I realized this is no longer about me. This is about my patients. And it's so exciting to see how each of the physicians, how each of the physicians uh, begin to uh, have that light bulb and understand that they can apply this. So. Uh, just organically, on a frontline basis, more and more physicians are beginning to incorporate this this discussion at the time of a patient visit. And uh, we're very lucky because at Kaiser Permanente, we're encouraged to talk to patients about their exercise and other uh, uh, lifestyle modifications. So it really kind of fits into our culture. That's outstanding. And are you finding that a lot of the patients are receptive to this, even if they you know, kind of raise an eyebrow initially? Well, uh, I, I would say that there's a there's a whole a large group of patients that are actually coming to the doctor asking the doctor, what can I do uh, not to go on more medications? So we've got we've got a pre-selected group, mm, uh, a pretty good percentage. Then there's the group of people that really have never heard of this, and as the doctors talk more and more about this, even if they're not motivated at that moment, at least we're giving them the education and the coaching, and maybe we can spark a little bit of motivation in them. And then there are there are uh, plenty of patients that actually get it, have adopted it, and they come back to their physician's office and they, they tell their story. And then I, I, I'm very lucky to be the recipient of hearing all these different stories. So it's, it's a mix of patients. Uh, some demand it, some want it, some don't. But uh, it, it doesn't matter because as long as we keep the conversation alive, at some point, uh, those patients will say will actually get it and, and, and then want to pursue it. Just a couple more questions as we wrap things up here with you, Doc. I appreciate you being so gracious with your time today. Um, kind of a fun one here is, you know, we, we talked about all the turkey burgers, the occasional French fries and the baked chicken and the things that you were eating before the heart attack. But now that you've been plant-based for a number of years, can you give us an idea of what's on your menu today? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, we'll start the morning with a good bowl of oatmeal and a lot of berries and maybe some seeds in there. Uh, we'll go work out. Uh, then the, the snack in the morning uh, might be an apple and maybe a little bit of nut butter. Lunch always consists of a big bowl of greens with plenty of, uh, I'm sorry, big bowl of greens with plenty of uh, beans on there. Uh, we'll have a snack in the afternoon, and then uh, dinner is, is going to be stir-fry vegetables with brown rice and uh, some tofu thrown in, and then uh, dessert is a, a, a big bowl of uh, fruit. 
I love the fact that you put big in front of virtually everything that you said there and that, you know, it's important to stress it to people that I think a lot of times when they hear the word diet, no matter what kind of diet it is, so vegan diet, plant-based diet, fad diet, keto diet, they always think about restricting portions. But the cool thing about the plant-based diet is if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, you really don't have to worry too much about portions because it's so nutrient dense and not exactly high in calories either. Oh, Chuck, you're you're so right about that. Uh, I'm I'm full every single day. I, I've never felt hungry, and yet I lost about 19 pounds and continue to keep it off. Uh, you know, the great thing about this diet, uh, as you mentioned, is that there's a lot of fiber in the diet, which uh, you can't overeat when you're eating whole food, plant-based foods that are full of fiber. Amen to that, my friend. Amen to that. The fiber, man, it, it just it kind of it cleans you out in every way imaginable. It is like the super nutrient around here. I can't tell you how many shows we've done on fiber. People just love it. Yeah, uh, no, I... <laughs> last question for you. You lost 19 pounds. It sounds like you're doing great. How are your arteries, man? Are everything pumping away as it should? Well, I'm basically off all of my medications. Uh, I no longer take anything. Uh, my lipid profile looks excellent, uh, feeling good. My energy is great and uh, uh, able to exercise at a higher level and volume. And then the recovery is so, is so fantastic. And I think that's why so many real athletes uh, are beginning to adopt this type of uh, dietary pattern because of the, the recovery that you get afterwards. So I'm feeling good. The energy is, uh, you know, the energy is fantastic. And I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, but honestly, I'm very lucky. But I think that having that heart attack might have been the best thing that ever happened to me so that I can now have this uh, healthy lifestyle and uh, maybe help uh, some other patients understand that, that they can have the same. And I'll tell you what, you know, it, this is just my personal prediction, but you thought that uh, you were going to live to the ripe old age of 71. I'm pretty confident that you're going to clear that mark pretty easily. What are your feelings toward that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, people ask about living forever. This is really not about long, longevity as much as, as it is just uh, good health up until uh, whatever time it is that, that it's our time to go. But we want high health uh, all the way to the very end, and I, I think that we can accomplish that through really uh, this this way of eating and, and good lifestyle uh, all, all the way around. There's one last thing I wanted to say if we have time, Chuck. Absolutely. This, this, quarter, this sort of closes the loop, and I just want to say this. Uh, almost six years to the day that uh, my wife, Shelly, said that we should attend the uh, Kickstart Intensive, Almost six years to the day later, last year, uh, I had the extreme honor and privilege to have Neil Barnard and some others from PCRM, uh, Betsy Wasson and Eric O'Gray, at my house for a small uh, meeting, uh, people, uh, a parlor meeting. And it was an extremely emotional meeting for me because Neil Barnard was standing about maybe 100 feet away from uh, the time that my wife said, let's go to this meeting up in Washington. We don't know who this Neil Barnard is, but let's go, <laughs> let's go to this meeting. He changed my life at that time. And there he was, you know, six years later standing in my house. And uh, it was, my heart was just filled with gratitude to, to both Neil, the professionals at PCRM, and my wife. Man, 
that's that's extraordinary and i'm so grateful and and proud of you for being able to make this transformation and happy for your entire family that you guys were able to stumble upon this information and attend the kickstart intensive and really become just great friends with us here at the physicians committee i could not be happier for you thank you so much and you know what i can i consider all of you at, at pcrm part of my family now and the feeling is very much mutual, my friend. So, Dr. Neil Cooper, you are a true inspiration to so many. Thank you so very much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Take care. Here's what we want to do. Dr. Cooper attended the Kickstart Intensive with his wife, and I have seen so many people come with their friends and family members, and I want to make sure that that can happen for you as well. So we have a special offer for exam room listeners right now. When you buy one ticket, you can give another for a gift for just $20. That's right. Buy one, give the gift of health for just $20. Head over to pcrm.org slash exam room. Buy one and give the gift of health for just $20. Join us Friday, January 10th and Saturday, January 11th at the Grand Hyatt right here in Washington. Two days is all you need to learn everything you need to know about going on a plant-based diet. The ins and the outs of nutrition, just like Dr. Cooper. You heard what this did for him. Now let it happen for you as well. And I will be speaking at the intensive on Friday the 10th, and I would love to see you there. And the lineup of speakers is just out of this world. It is a who's who of plant-based experts. Dr. Neil Barnard, he will be there. Dr. James Loomis, he will be there. Lee Crosby, she will be there, as will the extraordinary dietitian Maggie Neola. She will be there. All of them wonderful guests of this show, and now they are ready to share what it is that they know with you at the Kickstart Intensive. Here's what you're going to learn. You will learn how to make healthy meals in a hurry, right? Who has a ton of time to spend in the kitchen? And when you first go plant-based, you think you're going to be spending hours and hours and hours in there. But that is not true. We're going to teach you how to get down, how to get dirty, and how to do it in a hurry and continue to eat healthy right there at the Kickstart Intensive. And we're going to show you the best gadgets that you're going to want to get your hands on for your kitchen to speed up the process. And then for you nerds out there, you nutrition nerds, of which I am proudly one, you will learn the science behind the nutrition. Dr. Barnard, he's going to be there talking about breaking the food seduction and power foods for the brain. Two incredible topics, super important. You'll also be learning about reversing heart disease and diabetes. You're going to learn how to overcome emotional eating, and we're going to dive into fad diets a little bit. You're going to shatter some myths about the keto diet, and for those of you with a sweet tooth, you're going to love this. We're going to teach you how to make healthy desserts, for goodness sake, and of course, we're going to feed you. We've got breakfast. We've got lunch there for you both days. It's fabulous. URL just for you right now. Buy one ticket. Give a second ticket. Give the gift of health for just $20. And the URL to secure your tickets at this special price is pcrm.org slash exam room. And also speaking at the intensive is my next guest, Dr. Vanita Raman. 
And for the first time, I'm super excited about this. She and I will be opening up the listener mailbag. You have sent us your questions, and Dr. Raman has the answers. Plus, she will be previewing a little bit about what it is she's going to be speaking about at the Kickstart Intensive. So lots to dive into. Let's get going. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. So excited to be sitting across from Dr. Vanita Raman from the Barnard Medical Center. Thank you so very much for coming back on the show. It's been too long. Thank you for having me back, Chuck. It's great to be here. The pleasure is all mine, and I'm super excited because you you get the distinction of being the very first doctor to answer questions from the exam room mailbag. So thank you very much on behalf of not just the show, but the listeners as well. We're going to cover a whole lot of stuff today. I'm pumped. Are you pumped up for this? I am. I am, and I'm very honored to be your first guest. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, You know, and and we got so many questions when I said that we were going to be doing this segment. We got so many questions from people who just... You know, they're, they're so curious. They have a lot going on and they, yeah. you know, see things online. Well, is this true? Is what I read in this magazine true or should I be looking at something different? A lot of questions that they have and answers that hopefully you have will help clear that up. I'll do my best. All right. The first question comes to us from Instagram. It's a little bit of a long-winded question, so bear with me. I will be reading these verbatim. It says, Hi, Chuck. I wanted to reach out to see if you have any resources on the effect of going from a plant-based diet back to eating some meat. I was plant-based for six years, deviated for the last three, and gained 20 pounds that would not budge, no matter how little I ate or how much I worked out. I went back to plant-based, and surprise, those pounds have been falling off. I recently talked with my general doctor, who was totally supportive of the lifestyle, and she thought it might have been that my body was so used to functioning without the animal protein that it didn't quite know what to do when it was reintroduced. I've not heard or read anything on that specifically and wanted to see if maybe you had. Keep up all the great work. Well, thank you very much for that question. So what do we know about this? Is that general doctor off base? What do we know? Well, you know, as I hear that question, the first thing that's going through my mind is what was the listener's concern? What was this person worried about? What prompted them to reintroduce meat in their diet? Were they worried about a protein deficiency or some other kind of nutritional deficiency? Um, Because what we know is that a balanced plant-based diet can provide us with all the nutrients that we need. So we don't have to consume meat or dairy or poultry to get any additional nutrients. As far as why they gained weight, I think a, a simple explanation for that would be getting back to something you and I talked about last time, which is caloric density. Mm-hmm. Now, meat products have no fiber, just like animal foods in general have no fiber, and they are very high in fat, very high in protein, so their caloric density is very high. And this will invariably lead to weight gain. On the other hand, before the listener switched, they were eating a plant-based diet where the caloric density is much lower because plant-based foods are low in fat but high in fiber. Right. And so the caloric density is low and the weight kind of comes off and tends to stay off. 
And my guess would be that they probably gained weight because of this change in caloric density. And and as we heard, you know, they were able to successfully lose the weight by going back to a plant-based pattern of eating. Right. And I think it's really important for our listeners to know that the American Dietetic Association has come out and said that a plant-based diet provides all the nutrients we need at any stage of life, including Mm -hmm. infancy, lactation, pregnancy. So um, I hope people don't feel that they have to change things just to get more nutrients. A a couple things kind of run by my mind. And one, kind of to what it was you were just talking about is, you know, we have you know, nutrient requirements that mm-hmm. we that we must meet, but we don't necessarily have requirements about where we obtain said nutrients from. And the plant-based diet, if you can get all of the nutrients from that, which we know that you can, then, you know, boom, you're pretty well covered. But I also know as a former overweight guy that when you kind of slip and you deviate a little bit and you reintroduce one thing, well, what are the odds that you're also reintroducing some other things exactly. back into your diet as well that would cause that weight gain? That's something you're you, you're familiar with as well. You have a remarkable story with that. Yeah, I've I've been there. That all or nothing. I'm eating well, but once I deviate, it's like forget everything. You know, mm-hmm. I had that Coke. Now I might as well have the cookies and the ice cream and the cupcakes because it somehow it doesn't seem to count anymore. Nope. And then that invariably leads to ingestion of a large number of calories, and then the weight shows up a few days later. And and then, you know, you start all over again, which is not a great feeling. Right. So hopefully that cleared that up. Uh, so maybe it wasn't just the meat specifically. Maybe it was some other things. But, you know, that's that's a heck of a thing. So and and just... For me, again, personally, with food addiction, I think it's so important not to deviate because it is that slippery slope. Yes. That that Coke leads to those cookies and the French fries and to yeah. all sorts of other things. So uh, I'm very happy for this listener that they were able to get back on the diet and, and lost that weight. So congratulations to them. Uh, next question is a really interesting one, and I had never even thought about this until uh, they, they sent this to me. Uh, this is from a person named Antonio. He mailed this in on Facebook. He said, hey, Mr. Carroll. Well, first of all, my name's Chuck, but thank you. Uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast. As a seven-year vegan, I found it so useful and all of the precious knowledge. Well, thank you, sir. Um, He said, uh, thanks to your work, I'm suggesting it to all of my family members who are not plant-based since my father also has type 2 diabetes and won't listen to me. Hopefully hearing it from a doctor will change his mind. Here comes the question. I was also wondering if you have done any episodes where you talk about the right moment to eat any fruit during the day. I'm asking because I read a lot about the fact that sugars and fruit can slow down digestion of other foods if eaten right after or just before a meal. Also, I think it would be great to have an episode about fasting. We'll get to that in the future. But that is a really interesting thing. Antonio, thank you so much for your question. Is there a right or a wrong time to be eating fruit? You know, Chuck, I think there's never a wrong time to be eating fruit. Here, here. <laughs> and sadly, many patients with type 2 diabetes have been told to avoid fruit because their healthcare providers were concerned that the sugar in fruit would raise their blood sugars. Mm-hmm. But what we know from all the research that we and others have done is that the sugar found in fruit does not raise blood sugar values. Mm -hmm. It's really the amount of fat in the food. 
So let me just clarify this a little bit. Fruits do have some sugar in them naturally, but that sugar is coming with all sorts of goodness. It's coming with a ton of fiber. It's coming with a lot of vitamins and nutrients that we need. And that sugar is not the problem. The problem is the added sugar that mm-hmm. we put in our cookies, our brownies, our ice cream, or for that matter, fruit juice. So I tell people, eat all the fruits you want, but avoid fruit juices. Because in fruit juices, we're taking the sugar from fruit, we're taking the water from fruit, but we're losing a lot of the fiber. Mm -hmm. And now the sugar is much more concentrated. And we may have lost other nutrients too. So fruits are great. And, you know, I think nature gave us the perfect dessert. So it's great to wrap up every meal with a piece of fruit. I can't argue with that. And as far as the timing of it, do you know whether or not it does slow digestion? I mean, it's a high-fiber food, so maybe it yeah. would. I think, I think incorporating it any which way we can in our meals is important. You know, the average American consumes less than one serving of fruit a day. Wow. Imagine that. That's- less than one. I I was that American for so many years. As was I. (laughs) And, you know, so we would like people to eat four to five servings of fresh fruits a day. And they can be uh, any type of fruit people enjoy eating. But it's nice to get a rainbow, berries, strawberries, peaches, mangoes, whatever's in season, whatever people like. And however they can get it, whether it's before the meal, with the meal, after the meal, the key is to get it in our diet. Oh, yeah. I, I love I love some fruit. I, I'm such a big fan of it. You know, pineapple. My wife and I are just huge pineapple fans. But, you know, I placed this order. We were out of time, so we, we, we did our grocery shopping um, online. And they accidentally sent over mango, which was like twice the price. But I was like so pumped about this, man. I got like a pound of mango and I just crushed it. I was like, this isn't going to last. I'm sorry. I just need to take care of this right now. And I'll be back with you in about a half hour, honey. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's cool. And and you also made a really good point about diabetics and eating fruit. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother-in-law. Uh, She is a a diabetic, and she was just told that she could no longer eat bananas or strawberries or anything like that. And it just, you know, it upset me so much having the opportunity to learn as I have here with the Physicians Committee and and, and speaking with experts and doctors such as yourself and, and knowing that, like, one, they're way off base, but two... It's it's frustrating and it's sad that you have nutritionists and doctors who honestly feel that way. Right. You know? And and that gets back to something we talk about all the time that, you know, physicians and nutritionists are giving this advice because they simply don't know. Right. And we need to educate them so they can educate the patients. And you know, one other thing I was thinking of as we talked about fruit is I would just like to say something about dry fruit. So, uh a uh, whole fruit or fresh fruit is great, but it's important to know that it's 90% water. Right. And dry fruit is basically fruit where the water has been removed. So we're taking all those calories and just concentrating them into a much smaller package so the caloric density has gone up. So it's great to eat four to five servings of fresh fruits, but really if you're trying to lose weight or watch your blood sugars, maybe avoid the dry fruits or m- Eat you know eat that in moderation, right? Because those calories add up pretty quickly. And those would include those date bars and things like that Absolutely. that you get in the store. Yeah. yeah, fig bars, date bars, you know, 
cranberries. Um, they're often very tart, so a lot of sugar is added mm-hmm. to make them sweet. Yeah. Uh, but I will say, as the occasional treat, that that dried mango is a uh, oh man, that's pretty good stuff. It's wonderful. Those <laughs> are dates for that matter. I know, yeah. and figs. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's all good, really. Uh, all right, so here we go. Question number three comes to us from Laura Dye. She sent this in on Facebook. She says, "I would like to know about gut health and depression. Are there certain probiotics that help more than others?" That's a very big hot topic right now. What is the connection there? Oh, it's, you know, this is something we're still learning. And as you said, it is a hot topic because there's so much research going into it. And our gut and our brain are connected. We've all had instances where we're tense or anxious and we know it's impacting our gut. But it turns out it works the other way, too. Mm-hmm. The, the food that we eat um, determines our gut health, which in turn can impact our mood. It can impact our behavior. So it's all intertwined. What we know so far is that we have trillions of microbes in our gut. And those microbes play a pivotal role. They help us digest food. They help us absorb it. And they determine all aspects of our health. How they do that, we're still figuring that out. But we know they make an impact. And one of the things that we know is that these gut microbes are dynamic. They're not static. They change as we change. So as we change our diet the population that lives in our gut changes. And if we exercise, that population changes. Depending on what kind of light we're exposed to or how much sleep we get, they change. So one of the best things we can do for our gut is to feed it a healthy diet. Because when we eat healthy foods, we colonize our gut with microbes that are helpful to us. Mm. On the other hand, when we eat foods that aren't healthy, we colonize our gut with microbes that can be harmful. So what kind of foods are helpful? Foods that are high in fiber. Fiber is the perfect prebiotic. And what is a prebiotic? That's a food that these microbes feed off of. And the food they eat determines which populations grow, which populations dwindle out. Mm -hmm. And we want the healthy populations to grow and the unhealthy ones to dwindle out. So eating a high-fiber diet is key. And where does that fiber come from? Things we just talked about, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains. And so it's really important to eat this healthy plant-based diet because then we're naturally getting all the prebiotics we need. And we don't have to take supplements. And um, the other thing your listeners may have heard of are probiotics. Sure. So what are probiotics? Probiotics are live bacteria that are found in fermented foods, such as dairy yogurt or for plant-based foods, miso or sauerkraut. Kimchi. Kimchi, yes. Gotta <laughs> love that. Amen to that. <laughs> so we can eat these healthy plant-based foods and get the probiotics we need. And um, if I may, I would like to say one more thing. This, this you know, supplement industry is a billion-dollar industry. It's huge. Um, but it is not regulated by the FDA. And um, I would encourage our listeners, instead of going out there and spending their money buying supplements, spend that money on healthy foods. Because even if those supplements give us a few billion colonies of 
bacteria or colony forming units of bacteria, it's just a drop in the bucket because sure. we have trillions of these microbes in our gut. So, That's and, a good point. And here's an interesting factoid for you. What percentage of our cells are human? What do you think, Chuck? What percentage of our cells are human? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the cells in our body, I should say. Let me clarify. I that. mean, well, see, now here's the, is this a trick question? Because we're all human, ergo, should not the cells be human? Or no, they wouldn't be because we're consuming non human sources. All right, I'm going to say it's a 50 50 split. Well, you would be surprised. Only 10% of the cells in or on our body are humans. No. Yeah. Get out of town. Yeah. 10%. 10%. We're only 10% human. The Whoa. rest the rest belong to these microbes that colonize our skin, that colonize our intestine, our mucosal surfaces. Yo, so, we're all aliens. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so we really need to take care of these guys because they play a huge role in our health. Yeah. Oh, man, that's an interesting nugget. You have hit me with that knowledge today. Thank you. Uh, you didn't know there was going to be a pop. Quiz, I did, did not you? know that. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I failed miserably, but I am nonetheless a little bit smarter today. Um, I want to put a capper on the de- de- depression angle as well. I've always wondered, you know, you always hear about people feeling better when they start to lose weight. And part of me wonders, well, is it because they like what they see in the mirror and they're just getting that high? Like, wow, look at what I'm accomplishing. Mm-hmm. Or how much of that also has to do with the fact that yeah, your bacteria, your gut bacteria is also changing, and that's going to improve your mental health state as well. Well, I'm guessing it's probably a combination of all of it, because depression is very complex. Our mood is very complex. Yes. It's determined by how we perceive ourselves, how we feel others perceive us, uh, how we cope with stress, and everyday things that happen around us. But we're learning more and more. It's also shaped by these gut microbes. So, yeah, if we're changing our diet, our gut flora is changing, and it's very likely that that's going to impact our mood as well. Excellent point. All right. Next one is uh, about oil. This is another huge topic. We've done a show just specifically on oil, and I still get questions all the time Mm -hmm. about this. Everybody wants to know. Uh, This comes from Lori on Facebook. She writes, uh, what is the real science when it comes to plant-based oil? Some in the movement, quote unquote, say no oil or any form of it, not a drop. But those uh, others seem to allow it in varying degrees. Uh, what, uh, what, what say you when it comes to plant-based oils? Yeah, so really glad she asked that because this is something that comes up commonly. Um, because oil is so prevalent in cooking and people enjoy the taste of oil. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the nutritional profile of oil. So first of all, oil is basically fat. It has no protein, it has no fiber, and oil, vegetable oil is basically fat extracted from vegetables and refined so that it's this oily substance we use to cook with. Having said that, it really doesn't have any nutritional value. It's just added fat Mm. that we don't need. So why do we use it? Why has it been around? Why is it so popular? We use it because it adds richness to the food. We like, we like that taste of fat. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what's really interesting about fat, it's, it's a little bit of an aside, but research, uh, food industry does a lot of research. 
And they know that when it comes to sugar or salt, you add and add and the food tastes better, but then you reach a peak. And if you add any more, then it tastes, the taste goes down. We don't like something that's too sweet or too salty. Right. Well, guess what? With fat, there is no maximum. Oh, really? The more you add, the better it tastes. So that's why oil can be so enticing because we love that fatty melt-in-our-mouth feel of food. So it's popular, but it's not essential, and it has no nutritional benefit, as I said. So what should you do, practically speaking? You know, when you're cooking or preparing food, do you avoid it completely, or is it okay to use a little bit? Now, this concept was really hard for me because I'm Indian, and we use oil in everything. And the idea of cooking without oil just... I couldn't even fathom it, yeah. (laughs) And then I learned it is possible to saute onions and garlic and vegetables without oil. So absolutely, we can do it. But having said that, if you feel as you're cooking that you need a little bit of oil to grease the pan so food doesn't stick or burn, I think that's okay. But again, the key is to minimize it. So use an oil spray as opposed to pouring the oil. And um, if you're baking, again, just a light oil spray. And even olive oil that is highly regarded um, because it was used in Mediterranean culture is not really a health food. What we know is that all oils impair our endothelial function. The endothelium is the inner lining of our blood vessels. And so all oil impairs our vascular function, including olive oil. Right. It probably harms it less than others, but it still does. So we really want to avoid it. But I don't think we have to be completely strict, but it's, again, just use the bare minimum that we need to eat. You know, one of the things that kind of caught me by surprise after I, you know, I've really made a conscious effort to clean up my diet and cut way back on oil was when I go out to eat and sometimes you'll even ask them like, yo, like, chill on the oil don't Mm -hmm. don't put any in there and the chef is like what i don't know what to do let me put a gallon in here like i always do and you'd like take a bite and it's like wow you know it it really is like dipping your mouth in a vat of crisco and i wasn't prepared for that because the old me that's something that i would have loved but now it's like i just don't dig it anymore yeah that I am so glad you said that because I feel the same way. Yeah. I used to love drizzling oil on top of my food, on my hummus, on my soups, on my pasta. And once I stopped doing it, I lost that taste and I like the lighter taste now. Mm -hmm. And now if I get hummus in a restaurant and the chef has drizzled oil, to me, it takes away from it. Oh, yeah. And I'm not tasting the actual vegetables or the legumes. Right. I'm tasting the oil. And right. I don't care for it anymore. I'm not above blotting it out with a napkin. You know, if there's one by, it's like, let me just get it rid of as much of this. As yeah. a matter of fact, I did that with lunch today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's just... Boy, boy, how your taste buds can change. It's funny. And I would assume that some of that has to do with the gut bacteria as well. Uh, Last question, and this is going to segue kind of into our next topic. This comes to us from Rachel on Facebook. She said, hey, can we talk a little bit about salt? This is a hotly debated issue as some plant-based doctors are strictly no salt. I'm working on my master's in clinical nutrition. Well, good for you for going to school. That's awesome. Congratulations, Rachel. Anyway, working on my master's in clinical nutrition, and the subject comes off comes up often amongst my classmates. Thanks for considering. Thank you so much for the podcast. 
Salt, what say you? So let's talk about salt versus sodium. Okay. Now, I think the confusion is uh, which should we avoid, salt or sodium? So we know that salt contains sodium. About 40% of salt is sodium. The other 60% is chloride. But it's not salt per se that's the problem, and I'll explain why. It's the sodium in our diet. Mm. We know from plenty of research data that a high-sodium diet increases blood pressure. It increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, the risk of stroke. It increases the risk of osteoporosis and certain cancers. It can raise blood sugars. So we really want to limit our sodium. Now, where does sodium come from in our diet? Fine question. Yeah. Now, you would be surprised to know that if, if we could eliminate all the salt that we add to our food while we cook and all the salt that we add at the table, that would only eliminate about 15% of the sodium in our diet. Hold up. Say that again. What? Yeah. What? So let me, let me rephrase it. Only 15% of the sodium in our diet comes from salt that we add at the table or that we add when we cook our food. Mind-blowing moment. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Things I did not know. So, Amazing. So where is the other sodium coming from? About 10% comes from sodium that's naturally found in food, but a whopping 75% is coming from restaurant and processed foods. And and when I say restaurant and processed food, it's not just the salt that they're adding. It's all the food additives. All these things they add like dough conditioning agents, leavening agents, texture modifying agents, things to prolong the shelf life. All these additives have the word sodium in them. Mm. And they bring this high sodium load. And what's really interesting about this is food doesn't have to taste salty to be high in sodium. Right. So we could go to a local restaurant and get a cheesecake or, well, not that you and I would do that, but a some kind of dessert right? and think it's sweet, but be surprised to learn it has maybe over a thousand milligrams of sodium. Wow. Even though it doesn't taste salty at all. Wow. So it's really the sodium, not as much the salt. So how much sodium do you need? That is a good question. Well, it depends whose recommendations we look at. The American Heart Association says let's limit it to 1,500 milligrams a day. Mm -hmm. The World Health Organization says let's limit it to 2,000 milligrams a day. And the U.S. Health and Human Services says let's limit it to 2,300 milligrams a day. But regardless of which recommendation we look at, the average American gets roughly 3,500 milligrams a day. So the average American is getting 50% more. I don't think that that's something that the average American is necessarily conscious of either. I don't think so either. This is a huge gap, um, in, and this is something we need to educate our community about, mm-hmm. that we, you know, we really need to pay attention to sodium. But what's great is that the federal government requires that nutrition labels disclose how much sodium is in the food. Right. So I urge our listeners who are very nutrition savvy to start reading nutrition labels because if it has more sodium than calories, put it down. It's too much. 
And the other thing people can do is start looking at sodium information online. Chain restaurants are required to disclose their nutritional content, and they are required to show how much sodium is in the food that they serve. It's a shocking amount, especially with fast food. Just shocking. Absolutely. Everybody focuses on the fat and the calories when you go through the drive-through, man. But if you do request that nutritional menu that they they are required by law to have, yeah. if you ask for it, they will even give you a printout if you don't want to go online. It is a just jaw-dropping amount that they add to everything. You know, the burgers, the fries, the milkshakes, like every single thing mm-hmm. on that menu is just loaded with it. I'd venture to say the salads that they offer, the healthier options yeah. are probably loaded with it as well. They are. Be- and that's a great point because salad dressings are loaded with sodium. Yes, ma'am. And so could some of the salad toppings. If they're processed, they're probably processed with sodium additives. Mm-hmm. So. There we go. And that's something, uh, great segue here. Uh, By the way, Rachel, again, thank you so much for your question. If you ever have any questions, we're going to be opening up the Ye Old Mailbag once again in the very near future on the show. So go ahead and tweet us at Chuck Carroll, WLC, or at PCRM. Just use the hashtag Exam Room Podcast, and we will answer your question on a future show. Um, Talking about sodium, that's a great segue because you will be joining me and a whole bunch of others at the Kickstart Intensive coming up January 10th and 11th at the Grand Hyatt right downtown, not too terribly far from where we are here in Washington, D.C. That's one of the things you're going to be talking about, right? Absolutely, yeah. I am really excited for this. This is our great two-day event on January 10th and 11th, and we're going to cover a range of nutrition topics. Uh, And one of the talks I'll be doing is about sodium and potassium. Ah, okay. Because, as I said, we get too much sodium and we don't get enough potassium. And the combination of that is um, problematic because it raises blood pressure. It increases the risk of chronic disease. And we would really like to educate our attendees about how they can get enough potassium while curbing the amount of sodium in their diet. Real quick, give us a preview. What's the importance of potassium? So potassium uh, is the opposite of sodium. While sodium raises blood pressure, potassium lowers it. And, you know, the recommendations are that we should get about 4,700 milligrams of potassium a day. But the average American is getting roughly half that much. That poor average American is just taking a (laughs) beating in this conversation. (laughs) Well, we're looking to change the average. There we go. Wow, so that that's a that's a significant drop off, and and then I think back to uh, my mother in law, who again is in this nursing facility, and she's being told because she has diabetes she can't have a banana, banana high in potassium. But guess what? She also has high blood pressure. Holy cow! Right. What about eating that as opposed to taking blood pressure medication? You well, know? that's that's such a great point because when we when patients are told not to consume fruits, they're missing out on so many key nutrients: potassium which would help lower their blood pressure. Right. And they're missing out on all that fiber, which would lower cholesterol and blood pressure and blood sugars and improve bowel health. So it's, you know, it's a key aspect of our nutrition to consume plenty of fruits. And all fruits, not just bananas, kiwis, mangoes, they're all loaded with potassium. Give me all the fruits. <laughs> Give them to me right now. I will never turn it down. They're all so good. Um, here's one, and let's end with this, because this is this is a big one, and you and I talked about this on a previous show. You're also going to be discussing emotional eating there. Yeah. And I think anybody really that's struggling with their weight is likely also struggling with emotional eating. Yeah, this is really a big topic, and this is a big struggle. I think... 
I, I know I've been there. I know you've been there. And I think a lot of the people that we work with that are coming to us for help have been there. And what we're going to talk about are what can we do to deal with emotional eating? What are common triggers? What are common solutions? What can we do when we're in this situation, when we have an intense craving for a piece of chocolate? What can we do instead? Mm. Instead of that chocolate, what could satisfy it? Because what follows that emotional eating is not feeling so good about the emotional right, eating. Right. Well, okay. Well, let's let's end with this question. What? Okay, I think the majority of our listeners gravitate toward chocolate for emotional reasons, or it just seems to help. That's what my wife has explained to me. And instead of reaching for chocolate, what would you recommend that women reach for, or really anybody, to kind of get yeah. that same satisfaction and feel that sense of relief, that that warm blanket that they can pull over themselves and say, "Ah, it's all better now." Yeah, well, you know, first just accepting that maybe this, I don't, it's not the chocolate I need. I'm needing to feel better. Mm. And maybe it is just grabbing that blanket, curling up with your favorite book or or going for a walk outside because that can feel very soothing, like self-care, I'm taking care of me. Mm -hmm. But if your chocolate craving is really, really strong and you got to have something, you know, we've talked about this before, banana chocolate ice cream. Oh, preach. Yes. Yeah. So you're getting your potassium, you're getting your fiber, you're getting that chocolate creamy feeling, but you're getting with tons of nutrients and without the added sugar and fat. I believe that the recipe we talked about was literally frozen bananas and cacao, right? Yeah. And I'll put a splash of vegan milk in there. Okay. And it's great. Oh, it's it's world class. Uh, what Do you uh, use the uh, unsweetened vanilla milk? Like that's that's my favorite. Yeah. 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 My personal favorite is soy. So I'll use unsweetened vanilla soy milk yeah. and it's great. Oh, yeah. It, it really is. It's so good. I'll just drink a glass of that on my own and think that it's fantastic too. Yeah. I was I was such a, a big dairy junkie for so many years, you know, and so sometimes I'll still get that craving for a nice glass of milk and I'll just yeah. pour one and it's so good. Yeah. It's it's just as good as, as anything you've ever had in your yeah. entire life. And it's very soothing. Yeah. It's, and, and I like to think maybe sometimes when I'm craving that milk, maybe I'm craving something that's found in that milk. So That's a good point, too. Yeah. Could, I, yeah. It could be. I'm a big believer in your body kind of tells you what it yeah. needs. And so that a lot of times is probably why you're craving the things that you are. But it's then it's also kind of like you have to understand the cravings and what it is that you're really after. Like yeah. you said, something in what it is that you're craving that your body actually needs as opposed to the fat and the calories and everything else that comes with it. Right. So uh, that is phenomenal. I can't wait. January 10th and 11th at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, D.C. We have a special offer right now for exam room listeners. If you head over to PCRM.org slash exam room, a very special secret URL for you and you alone, uh, you can register, get a ticket for yourself, and then get a second one. Give the gift of health this season for only $20. So wow. you and a friend or a family member can go together. PCRM.org slash exam room. Buy one, get one for just $20. That is a heck of a deal. Two days, everything you could possibly need to know about going plant-based. This is a crash course and one you will not soon forget. I can't wait to uh, see you there. Yes, I'm really excited to do this. I think it's going to be great. I think it will as well. And I'm really excited that you were able to do the uh, very first mailbag for us here. That was a yeah. lot of interesting discussion there. there. You know, and the questions are really very telling of how important nutrition is. It's foremost on people's mind. And there's so much confusion. 
And it's great that they can write in, and we can address it for them. I love that, and we have some very nutritionally savvy listeners, as you said. We do、uh, definitely. The depth of the questions is amazing. I love you if you're listening. You are very smart, very <laughs> smart indeed, Dr. Vanita Raman. Thank you so very much for your time. Pleasure. Dr. Vanita Raman, isn't she just the best? Love it when she's on the show. She is such a wealth of information. So cool! And remember, you can meet her in person at the Kickstart Intensive at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, right here in the capital of the U.S., Washington D.C. Friday, January 10th, Saturday, January 11th, and we have a special offer just for our exam room listeners. Head over to pcrm.org/examroom, and there you can buy one ticket and give another one. Give the gift of health for just twenty dollars. Give it to a friend. Give it to a family member. Take this journey together. It makes it so much more rewarding. Remember, it was Doctor Cooper's wife who insisted that he go, and it changed his life. He survived a heart attack, and then went plant-based and is paying forward everything that he learned at this event. And more, paying it forward with his patients. So why not go there and learn it for yourself, and then share this also with the people that are closest to you, your loved ones. PCRM.org/examroom is the place to go. Special offer just for exam room listeners. Buy one ticket, give a second one, give the gift of health for just twenty dollars. That's Friday, January tenth, and Saturday, January eleventh, twenty twenty. I'll be speaking there on Friday, and I would love to meet you there. But that's in January. Also, don't forget coming up December 18th at the Fruitive and Dupont Circle right here in Washington D.C. The Fiber Queen Lee Crosby and I, wonderful nutritionist, she and I will be teaming up to do a live recording of this here podcast at the Fruitive, 1330 Connecticut Avenue, Dupont Circle in beautiful Washington D.C. Showtime set for 7 p.m. We're going to teach you tips and tricks for having a healthy holiday, surviving the holidays, and navigating those awkward social situations that you're at those parties and nobody else is vegan, but you are. So how do you keep it plant based? We will show you, and we're going to send you home with some recipes for some plant-based, healthier holiday treats that will knock your socks off and put those skeptics, as they enjoy these these treats, that will change their life. And they say, "Hey, this whole plant-based thing—that's not that bad. It's pretty good, actually." And indeed, it is. We're going to send you home with some recipes that will knock everybody's socks off, and they are guaranteed to be healthier than what it is that they will typically be eating. And you can pick up your tickets for that show right now at facebook.com/slash/weightlosschampion. That is my personal Facebook page, and I've also included a link for you to get them right now in the show notes for this episode. And if you ever have any question that you'd like for us to answer on the show, one that you'd like for us to answer in the next mailbag, don't ever hesitate to ask because soon we're going to be doing it again, and this is your chance to ask the doc. So you ask, and the doctor will answer. Shoot us your questions on Twitter at Chuck Carroll WLC. Also on Instagram, same handle at Chuck Carroll WLC. And you can find the Physicians Committee on Twitter at PCRM and on the gram at Physicians Committee. Shoot us your questions using the hashtag Exam Room Podcast, and we would love to get you some answers on a future show. And that's going to do it for us this week. My thanks again to Doctors Neil Cooper and Vanita Robin. So appreciate your time today, 
and for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, keep it plant-based. <laughs>